0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chastley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Innovation breakthrough. White House advisor Dr. Deborah Burke says more antibody work is needed to support reopening. No Limits, the Bank of Japan scaling up bond buying to fight the economic crisis. And a matter of survival, the future of Airbus at stake as the CEO warns it's bleeding cash. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be back with you as we begin a brand new week together. It's also a crucial week, too, as more European nations and U.S. states embark on partial, at least, reopening of their economies. It feels like an inflection point in the COVID-19 crisis as the West opens up. But without the scale of testing and tracing seen in places like South Korea, in China and in Taiwan, too, nothing Would be worse for consumer confidence, for business confidence, too. And our weakened economies if we go too far too fast and have to lock down once more. That's the test. And it's going to be a dominant theme, I think, for investors over the coming weeks. For now. As you can see, U.S. stocks are higher pre-market, retracing some of the modest losses that we saw last week. Though the tech outperformance, I have to say, continues, having already helped the S&P 500 bounce over 25% from last month's lows. Fang. Heavyweights, Facebook, Apple, Alphabet and Amazon will all report results this week. So they'll be key to watch too. And I'll keep making the point that we need to separate stock market performance from the underlying economies that they represent. That's a reflection of the power of central banks and the cash, the sheer quantity of cash that they've thrown at the system. And that's not over. Today, more action from the Bank of Japan. The central bank dramatically raising the amount of corporate debt that it will now buy to make it easier for businesses to borrow. Ultimately, they'll also buy, they say, an unlimited amount of government debt if necessary, too. They're already not buying as much as they could. So, it'll be interesting to see how they behave going forward. But Japanese stocks rose more than 2.5% on the news. And as you can see, I think that news helped drive the broader Asia stock markets higher, too. The Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank are meeting this week, too. So, we'll see what they have to say about fresh support measures, too. More lending or more spending or both. Let's get to our drivers. A breakthrough in antigen testing. That's what's needed, says White House advisor Dr. Deborah Burks, to fully control the coronavirus pandemic as economies reopen. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Elizabeth, great to have you with you. Um, you with us and hopefully you managed to get some rest this weekend. Separate these two things for me because we keep talking about the need to ramp up testing generally. But then there's testing to see who's had this virus and may not even have known about it or shown symptoms. And that gives us a sense of how much immunity is out there and what's, what immunity is required to give you some protection going forward. We don't have that
1: yet. We don't have that yet. And so let me let me take off on sort of a thread that you mentioned there, Julia. So let's separate these two tests. One test involves trying to see if you currently are infected with coronavirus. That involves uh, typically a swab that goes to the nose and the back of the throat. And that tells you if you're in, if you have it right now. The antibody test is a blood test. It's either done by a needle in your arm or a finger prick. And that tells you if you had it in the past and you might might, might, notice I said that three times, you might a fourth time possibly be immune to the virus. There are several problems with antibody testing. Let me talk about the two big ones. One is we don't know if we have a reliable test. There are so many tests out there on the market. In the U.S. alone, there's more than 90 different companies that have been given permission to sell their tests, but we don't know if they work. And as a matter of fact, there's some indication that many of them don't and that they're giving false results. And secondly, even if we had a test that we knew was right even if we had a test that said yep for sure you have antibodies to coronavirus you were previously infected and now you have antibodies we don't know what those antibodies mean and i can't stress this enough that we are still trying to figure it out does it mean that you're immune right now but maybe not a few months from now does it mean you might be sort of immune now but not but kind of not does it mean you have no immunity we just don't know and that's what they're trying to figure out Define innovation
0: breakthrough, then, to go back to what Dr. Burks suggested is required. How far away do you think, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here, are we from being able to analyse what we get in terms of antibodies, assuming the tests are, are accurate? Um, how far away from that point are we, Elizabeth?
1: So Julia, that's that's okay. I'll let you put me on the spot. Not many other people, but I'll <laughs> I'll let you do that. So, and the answer is is that I, I'm not in Dr. Burke's head, so I don't know what technology breakthrough she was specifically thinking about. But I will tell you that the experts that I'm talking to have actually looked at these antibody tests. What they say is that there needs to be more validation, validation on top of validation on top of validation. Validation means that you take some blood samples where you know these people didn't have coronavirus because let's say it's from 2018 coronavirus didn't, this coronavirus didn't exist then. And you test it. And if you get positive results, you know that something is wrong. Then you take people who you know had coronavirus because they had a positive PCR test, they had symptoms, they were in the hospital. And if you get a negative, you know it's wrong. And so we need to keep validating the tests. And really, when it comes down to it, and I think, Julia, as a financial person, you'll appreciate this, we don't need 90 different people marketing a test in the United States alone. There is no need for that whatsoever. And as a matter of fact, it hurts because then the scientists have to take the time to keep validating these tests. Does this one work? Does that one work? We need some good tests. We don't need dozens of good tests. We need to have a few reliable tests that we know are right.
0: Yeah, we do. And then we need to use the Defense Production Act to scale up so that we have enough of these once we trust the ones that we do have. Ugh, Elizabeth. Great to have you with us. No cookie today for exactly. me, I have to say. Shame. Thanks. Elizabeth no, Cohen, tomorrow. Oh. Yeah, we'll work on it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. A lack of testing capability is not putting off more U.S. states from partially lifting coronavirus restrictions. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin expressing optimism about the recovery. Listen to this.
1: I think as we begin to reopen the economy in May and June, you're going to see the economy really bounce back in July, August, September.
0: White House economic adviser Kevin Hassett warning of a pretty dire situation.
2: Make no mistake, it's a really grave situation, George. This is the biggest negative shock that our economy, I think, has ever seen. Uh, We're going to be looking at an unemployment rate that approaches rates that we saw during the Great Depression.
0: Christine Romans joins us now for more. Christine, I think they're both right. I think we're in a very distressing situation. We could, as we reopen the economy, see some kind of bounce back. For me, it's the what next What kind of recovery are we looking like? And that comes down to what we were just discussing there, testing. And, of course, perhaps more support and the safety net that's being provided
3: and more required. Yeah. I mean, what Kevin Hassett is telling you is what's happening right now. And he's right. Yeah. I mean, These are depression era numbers, as you and I have said again and again. And what the Treasury Secretary is telling you is that why it won't be a depression because of the unparalleled support be- between the Fed and Congress to this economy. You're also right that the first thing I was reading this morning were all of these economist notes saying, here's the next wave of aid that we think uh, is going to be coming even before this stuff is even out the door. They're talking about state aid. They're talking about extension of under these are the economists would like, extension, another extension of unemployment benefits, maybe an infrastructure build next year. So there is a feeling that there is fiscal support for this economy. Uh, We don't know what it's going to look like, whether it's a a V or U, a W. The Treasury Secretary is clearly saying he wants it to be a V. He thinks it should be a V. But you've got economists saying you're going to need a lot more support for this economy to make sure it's a, a depression with a little D and not a depression with a big D.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've only had, what, half of the trillions of dollars that we were initially saying is required to stimulate, to support, and then boost a recovery in the U.S. economy. In the interim, the PPP, the lending program, back up and running today, though, I still have plenty of questions over who's going to get access, how quickly they're going to get access, and the Small Business Administration saying that you can bulk If you've got 15,000 or more applications, you can give them to us in bulk and we'll deal with them. That worries me, too, for very small businesses.
3: Well, look, so they're saying that that's a one-time only deal. If you're one of these banks that's got all of these deals on your book or all these requests for loans on your books, you can get them out the door and then go one by one uh, after that. And we know that the SBA and the Treasury have told these banks, look, if you have applications that are already in queue, go ahead and process those. So a lot of small business owners have been wondering, do they need to apply again? Are they going to be considered? Just exactly what's going on here. Uh, You know, this is a lot of money, $310 billion. But I mean, everybody I talk to says it's going to be a matter of days, at, at the most, that this is going to this is going to last. We do know that there's 60 billion in here, here this time that is very specifically targeted to the. Pipe work, the, the piping and the framework that services some of these um, really small businesses that don't have uh, big banks. They have community lenders or community development uh, roots. So hopefully there's going to get some money to, the, to these underserved uh, communities as well. But you know, we, we shall wait to see. They're trying to get the money out as quickly as possible. That means they haven't written a lot of restrictions into the statute, which means some people can take advantage of that.
0: Yeah, and they've restricted the big banks to 10% of the pot, so around right. $60 billion here as well. And Bank of America at the weekend saying that they got $50 billion already, so yeah. ugh, we shall see. The demand is huge. Yeah, demand is huge. That's the one thing we do know right now, and they're pretty desperate for these small businesses too. Christine Romans, thank you for that. You're Right. The Bank of Japan reiterating the whatever it takes mantra. The nation's central bank is committing to buying more corporate debt and unlimited government debt as it forecasts a drastic slowdown for the world's third largest economy. Kari Joji is in Tokyo for us. Kari, just um, explain to us exactly what the Bank of Japan announced overnight, what support measures, and then we'll analyze how good it's going to be.
4: Yeah, well, this is back-to-back easing by the Bank of Japan, and it's basically telling us that it's going to spend its way out of re- recession. Uh, the first and foremost, as you pointed out, it's announced that it's going to buy as many bonds as it needs to, to try and keep long-term interest rates low. So they've removed this cap, which was symbolic to begin with, because it wasn't even, even near that. But it does send this message that they're going to do whatever it takes to try and limit the damage, the fallout from the COVID-19 and the the. Shutdowns, uh, But this is a harsh assessment of reassessment of the economy that the Bank of Japan has done. Uh, they've cut their GDP estimates for this fiscal year. They've because, given us a range of minus 3% growth to as bad as minus 5% growth. And they're saying that inflation will not hit that 2% target for at least another three years. So it basically means that eight years of this Abenomics economic agenda has been wiped out by COVID-19 over the last three months. Uh, Funding costs are creeping up. This is a worry. And in a surprise move today, they said, the Bank of Japan said that they will offer interest rates of 0.1% to banks if they take advantage of a loan scheme that was put in place to try and get banks to lend to smaller companies. And I think this is critical because... Unlike after Lehman, when it hit the manufacturing sector the most here, which is the backbone of the Japanese economy, this time around it's hitting the service sector. And these are mom and pop stores, but they're a critical part of the economy because they employ 70%. They provide 70% of the jobs. So they want to take mm. up the banks to be able to take up all of that. And of course, basically, they're putting up a wall of money offering to buy commercial paper and uh, corporate bonds.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how often we talk about the biggest corporations in a lot of these developed nations, and yet it's the small businesses that are the backbones of the economy and in the front line of the damage that's being done here. And to your point, an a-year battle now to stop falling prices ended by COVID-19. Great to have your analysis here. We'll, uh, we'll watch how the support measures have filtered into the economy. Carrie and Joji there in Tokyo for us. Thank you. Now, the survival of Airbus may be at stake. That's according to the CEO of the aerospace giant. He warned employees in a letter that the firm is bleeding cash, quote, and perhaps further job cuts may be needed down the road too. Our Anna Stewart joins us now on this story. Anna, bleak, we know it's a challenge. We know many of the companies in this space. And for the airlines, it's been a a terrible period. What more is Airbus saying here? And are we talking about significantly further job cuts?
1: Well,
5: that is the big concern. I think those words in that letter, bleeding cash at an unprecedented speed will be really worrying for the you know, 130,000 people that work at Airbus. Now we knew that Airbus had already slashed its production by a third a few weeks ago, but clearly it's gonna to have to take uh, more measures and probably much more severe measures going forwards. Looking at the sector, I mean, IATA already told us earlier this month, it thinks the pandemic could cost the world's airlines up to $314 billion just this year in revenue. Some airlines will get bailouts, we're already beginning to see some of that, some airlines won't, some airlines will not survive the coming months and speaking to an aviation analyst this morning and talking about the implications that that has for aircraft orders, well you can add more uncertainty in terms of what will we see in terms of consolidation of airlines and how will that change what they need in terms of aircraft. Even after restrictions are lifted, what will the consumer appetite be to fly? How will it change in the months and possibly years in terms of the balance of long haul versus short haul? All this has an implication, of course, for the order books. And frankly, the next four or five years of orders almost feels like a work of fiction, if you're looking at it from Airbus and Boeing's point of view at this stage. So many questions. now. Speaking about Airbus specifically, uh, they can uh, use some of the furlough schemes. We know they're doing that in France for around 3,000 workers. We're not sure whether they furloughed any workers in the UK. There is a scheme here as well. There are loans, there are credit lines from banks. But what we're looking at for Airbus, for Boeing, for the airlines, is not just a short-term, few months, sharp downturn and a V-shaped recovery. We're looking at months, maybe years, of financial pain. Julia? Yeah, it's, it's a fundamentally
0: changed sector, and to your point, we don't really have clarity on what recovery looks like. and that is the critical challenge for all of these um, for these companies. Talk about Boeing specifically because it's a big week for them too. Earnings,'ll we'll get details if they are going to take that financial money and under what conditions too. So lots to come from Boeing as well this week.
5: Lots come this uh, week, and over the weekend, we had news, of course, uh, about the contract they had with Embraer. Uh, given everything we just mentioned, it's unsurprising they no longer want to go through with buying an 80% stake in Embraer's commercial jet unit. That was going to be a $4.2 billion deal. Embraer, though, is saying that Boeing has wrongfully terminated the deal. They're going to take legal action. It could leave Boeing with a termination fee of $100 million. Add to that, Julie, in addition to the pandemic, and all of these unforeseen sort of challenges and questions. The fact that the 737 Max is still costing this business hugely. In January, they said that the uh, the ground planes were gonna cost them nearly $19 billion. And that was before the pandemic and last month with airlines canceling orders for 150 of those planes. So the challenges for Boeing just keep coming. Big week for them, earnings, and as you said, that deadline to apply for a government uh, aid package. Julia.
0: Yeah, Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that analysis there. What a challenge. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But up next, Essential Testing, a former head of the CDC, says the United States is not ready to reopen. We get his take on what's needed before America returns to work. And Uber's new roadmap, how the car hailing app, is adjusting to a world in which customers stay at home and off the roads. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where we're still looking like a higher open for U.S. stocks this Monday morning. Fresh emergency support from the Bank of Japan, I think, helping boost global sentiment here ahead of key results from some of the major tech firms, as I mentioned. We've got the Nasdaq higher by more than 1% pre-market. Elsewhere, though, in earning news, Deutsche Bank helping those shares up around 10% in European trading. As you can see there, they've pre-announced that first quarter results will be stronger than expected. Also in Germany, the German sports apparel maker Adidas reporting a more than 90 percent drop in Q1 earnings and is warning of even worse results in the current quarter. Wow, a 93 percent drop in profits for Adidas there. U.S. stocks are set to rise despite another sharp drop in oil. So keep a look and an eye out for the energy stocks in particular. What you're looking at there is Brent and WTI. As you can see, WTI right now down almost 26%, trading below $13 a barrel there. So that pressure and the volatility in the oil sector continues. In the meantime, the Chinese city of Wuhan was the first city in the world to go into that coronavirus lockdown. But it's not business as usual after the 76th day of quarantine. This, of course, remains a focus as the rest of the world tries to get back to business. The scars of the viral outbreak lie just beneath the surface, as David Culver reports.
6: It's Tuesday, April 21st, and uh, after, well, I guess it was about two and a half months, yeah, we are leaving Shanghai. Our journey back to the original epicenter of the novel coronavirus outbreak required weeks of planning. While within China, some cities are easing travel restrictions, new hotspots can suddenly surface, and so too, new lockdowns, which could trap us mid-travel for an unknown amount of time. But all layered up, and we felt this was the moment to return. And this is our ticket here. might be reversed, but maybe you can see it. I'll take a picture as you can see it. Our destination set for Wuhan. It's going to be about a four-hour train ride. We've noticed it's relatively full so far. I'd say at least maybe half full, which is pretty significant given it was next to no one traveling for several weeks. Let's get on board here. On board, the train attendants collect our passports. They try to place CNN photojournalist Justin Robertson's accent. Where am I from? <laughs> Where am I from? I'm from, from London. England? Yeah. England, no. Oh. England, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is not just friendly conversation, as they want to be sure that we've been in the country for at least two weeks so that we're not potentially importing the virus from other areas. The threat to China now? Thought to be external. Arriving in Wuhan, I'm quickly reminded of the last time we were here, almost three months to the day. We'd spent just 29 hours on the ground when we abruptly learned that Wuhan was going on lockdown. CNN shared that scramble out of Wuhan with you. A rushed checkout sparked by a 3 a.m. phone call. Our rush right now is to uh, check out, get out. We headed to the train station as soon as we got word. As we arrived, crowds already lined up for tickets, stretching out the door. It's 4.15 in the morning here, and the only way to buy tickets at this hour uh, is in person. From there, it was off to a Beijing hotel, quarantining before the rest of the world realized you'd soon be doing the same. 14 days in a hotel room to make sure we'd not contracted the virus. We continued our live reporting from quarantine, then relocated to Shanghai. And here we were, three months later, headed back to Wuhan. The lockdown was over, but the hesitation remains. Um, you know, just As we interviewed an American who's lived in Wuhan since 2009, we also experienced the increased skepticism toward foreigners like us and the growing distrust of Western media. A crowd of police questioning us. What do you say? Where are you from? Oh, you speak English? Huh? I'm from I'm from U.S. But I live in Beijing. It was not our only interaction with authorities. When we returned to what some Chinese scientists believed to be the source of the outbreak, the Huanan seafood market, and started recording, police stepped out of a nearby tent to ask us why we were there.
4: Oh, okay. Uh, What do you say? Just, Just be quick.
6: Perhaps the most sensitive spot on our visit, this funeral home and crematorium. Normally, you do not find police posted outside. But last month, Chinese media published a report claiming more urns were distributed than reported coronavirus deaths, calling into question the official figures. We wanted to investigate. But even as we were across the street, police quickly approached us. Tell them who we are. Show them who we are. We just attempted uh, to go to one of the funeral homes in hopes of seeing some of the grieving families and hearing from them their perspective of what transpired over the course of the lockdown and losing their loved ones. As we were there, police didn't like that we were there. They happened to be positioned right outside. Held us there for a little bit, didn't let us leave, and finally, after a few minutes, we were able to continue on our way. Given that many medical experts believe the virus transmitted from wildlife to humans, we wanted to go to another Wuhan wet market to see what they were selling. It's a pretty much find markets just like this all across China. This is actually a pretty normal one. You've got a bag full of toads, some fish on the chopping block over there. No wildlife here, but some snakes, lots of frozen <laughs> poultry, along with an array of fresh vegetables and spices all under the same roof. Scenes like this appear to show the city of 11-plus million residents coming back to life, folks enjoying a game of badminton or just soaking in the stillness, knowing that after weeks sealed inside your home, this is a luxury. And while many of the businesses here remain closed, the ones that have reopened are changing up the way they operate, keeping customers outside, bringing the products to them. Hotels, like ours, spraying down everyone who walks inside with disinfectant. The elevators are marked with a safe social distance. They provide a tissue to keep your bare fingers from touching the buttons. All of this as testing for the virus has become streamlined here. Before we left, we had to get ours done too. An easy appointment to make, a quick throat swab, a $35 fee to expedite the results, and 24 hours later, we were handed the paperwork showing we were negative. And with that, we could then safely depart. A far less rushed checkout this time leaving Wuhan compared to three months ago. We're getting in
3: the car, headed into the train, and we're headed to Shanghai.
6: On the train back, police carefully examining our passports and test results, allowing us to return to Shanghai without having to do another quarantine. Once again, leaving behind Wuhan as it slowly awakens in this post-lockdown era. The people left a bit shell-shocked. Navigating this uncertain moment with a cautious optimism. And the story now finds us back here in Shanghai. A lot of folks will ask what life is now like in Wuhan, given that they technically reopened on April 8th. The reality is they're still far from open. Many businesses still remain closed, by our guess, more than half based on what we saw driving through many of the commercial streets. And a lot of the folks are still hesitant, uncertain about what they believe might come, assuming that could be a second wave. David Corver, CNN, Shanghai.
0: We're going to go live to Shanghai and chat to, to David in just a few moments' time. I have so many questions watching that in light of the reopening that we're seeing elsewhere. Testing streamlined, one of my key takeaways. More to come. And, of course, the market open. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chasley, where U.S. stocks are kicking off a new week with gains that despite fresh weakness in the oil markets, as I mentioned, uh, we're seeing a boost from new emergency action from the Bank of Japan too. As we've discussed, the central bank announcing today that it will buy as many government bonds as necessary to steady its economy. It's a promise they've already made in the past, but now they're buying more corporate debt too. Fresh moves to get economies up and running again in both Europe and the United States. A key factor, I think, here in seeing a bit of a lift early doors for U.S. markets. U.S. companies taking new steps to shore up their balance sheets amid the crisis, too. General Motors, just the latest, announcing that it's suspending its dividend and stock buybacks. Its shares are lower in early trading. Dividends, of course, key for distinguishing those that were relatively stronger coming into this crisis and, of course, how they come out of it. A real challenge for these automakers and demand going forward. GM currently down almost 3%. In early trading, Uh, the cars, of course, a key factor in what goes on in uh, the Chinese economy as well. We were just hearing about life back in Wuhan and the recovery post the lockdown. David Culver has just returned from Wuhan, as you were hearing there, and joins us now from Shanghai. David, always great to, to have you on the show. As you were pointing out there, and there were things that were jumping out to me as you were speaking, one, normal is a new normal. It's not what we saw in the past, but things like testing becoming streamlined, the test that you fast-tracked in order to be able to leave Wuhan and go back to Shanghai. And when I look at Europe and I look at the United States, we are nowhere near that in terms of capabilities here. It's pretty frightening, I have to say.
6: I've heard that a lot, Julia, and I, I think frightening, frustrating. I, I think a lot of people are worried when they see that. But the other thing I, I would stress here is that it's not always been this way. In fact, I'll just go back to some of our reporting Three months ago and you realized how dire the situation was when it came to the lack of testing capacity within wuhan within hubei province the original epicenter of all of this at one point they only had some 200 tests available each day i mean wuhan's a city that is larger than new york of more than 11 million people live in that city so it gives you an idea of of how desperate they were early on however what we've now seen is obviously when the central government took over uh, they, they pushed aside the local government, which was seen as mishandling, underreporting, covering things up. And a military-like operation to ramp up production took place. And of course, now you have hundreds of thousands of tests available each day to the point where we can go down there. And as foreigners, we're the ones that they're really skeptical of because we're seen as potential imported cases of the virus. And so they make sure that if we're gonna be traveling around, that we have to get tested. And the same is now true for locals too, but they have that capacity where you can simply make an appointment and pop in that day. And if you pay an expedited fee, 24 hours later, you get the results. If you don't pay the fee, you can wait three or four days and still get the results. And it's those results, Julia, that then allow you to travel around China, essentially saying, I'm clean. I'm not bringing anything uh, beyond myself with me. Uh, No virus to, to, to potentially expose others to.
0: Yeah, your point about the ramp up, though, going from 200 tests a day to what we now see is critical as well, and other nations, we hope, will follow suit. David Kovac, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for updating us on that from Shanghai there. Thank you. China, of course, a crucial manufacturing hub for the U.S. retail sector, though supply chains have been disrupted both by the global COVID-19 pandemic, but also, and we can forget this and shouldn't, the ongoing trade tariffs on products entering the United States from China. U.S. retail sector, of course, in the firing line for this. Retail sales fell almost 9% last month. It was the worst monthly decline on record. Stephen Lamar is the president and CEO of the American Apparel and Footwear Association and joins us now. Stephen, all sorts of fears and great to have you with us about the retail sector and its relative resilience as we push through the coming months. What's your assessment? Just how bad has it been and will it become?
2: Well, uh, Julia, thank you for having me on the show. Um, This has been devastating. This is a, a deadly health crisis that's turned into a an existential economic and business crisis. You know, companies have had to close their doors. Uh, they do this out of, the, out of abundance of caution and safety, of course, it's the right thing to do. But, you know, these are companies that are not structured to operate with no revenue coming in. So with no revenue, they've had to lay off employees, they can't pay their bills. I um, mean, this has um, terrible economic consequences and reverberations throughout the supply chains, um, both in the U.S. and, and throughout the world. It's, it's really been very, very tough, very hard to see um, our economy and the global economy going
4: through
0: this. We've seen a few winners, and it's those that have fundamentally strengthened and grown their online offering. Amazon, of course, is a classic example of this. Do you worry that those that have been relatively resilient, and we've seen them higher, and it's Walmart, it's Target, it's Amazon, will perhaps continue to benefit and we will see less diversification in retailers, following these events,
2: well, this is this is a, a crisis that's um, that that's really led to some some companies being able to grow their online business. For example, of course, that's one of the areas that we've seen um, a lot of um, a lot of positive news. But not everyone's structured to be online. Um, all the, the millions and millions of jobs that are still dependent on brick and mortar, um, those stores are, are shuttered and those jobs are are temporarily lost. And that's one of the reasons we've been um, so aggressive in talking to the government and advocating to the government to uh, provide liquidity you know liquidity is the name of the game we want to get as many of these companies that um, are temporarily shut to uh, to stay around so that when the economy does start back up and we want to make sure the economy can do that in a safe and responsible manner so when the economy does start up it can it can do so and it can provide um, those jobs, either retain those workers to the extent they can, or we hire them quickly uh, once consumers have enough confidence to get back into into the stores.
0: Steve, now you're also asking for the tariffs, the tariffs that are still being applied to U.S. businesses that are importing Chinese goods. Have you asked for those to be suspended or removed? Because surely that would help too.
2: Yeah, We have a, we have a number of asks in this area. And, and in fact, last week we released a statement signed by about 70 uh, of our sister trade associations around the world making a similar request of governments um, throughout the world to, to be united in this effort, um, not only to provide liquidity, but also to provide some tariff relief and, and uh, restrain themselves from any new trade barriers. In the case of tariffs, um, we have a situation where we're asking the U.S. government to defer duties for a period of anywhere from 90 to 180 days uh, they've already done some of that. We're asking them to do more to continue that going, because what happens is companies have to they have to make a decision either they can pay the U.S. government those tariff costs, or they can use those those that cash to pay their payroll to to keep their employees on the payroll. And when you have a choice between paying the U.S. government or paying your payroll, um, and you have to pay the U.S. government, the employees lose. So we're hoping that the federal government will extend those tariff um, deferral programs. Uh, so we can continue to, to preserve that cash to keep operations going. We're yeah, also it's asking, choice. Yeah. Right, well, Sorry. and we're also, as you say, we're asking asking them as well to to suspend tariffs on items of personal protective equipment. These are items like masks and gloves and, and isolation gowns where we still charge tariffs, including those damaging punitive tariffs on those items when they're coming from China. It's going to be as much as 33%. And we're asking the, the, the government to, to cease collecting those tariffs to suspend those tariffs so we can deliver more of them. So um, when governments are, are buying and paying for those products, they don't have to pay as much um, because that, that that tariff cost simply is a cost that's added to the final consumer.
0: Yeah, it's insanity to me that protective equipment still has tariffs on it when we know there's desperate need still in the United States. Stephen, very Absolutely. quickly, what proportion of businesses do you think – we lose in the retail sector, even with the support measures, lending, hopefully the removal of some of these tariffs. What proportion do we lose?
2: Oh, I think it's truly to predict that. I mean, our goal is to lose as, as few as possible. We want to make sure that, you know, we come out of this as strong as we possibly can. You know, we keep saying we're in this together. And our view is, is that all of our, um, all of our members, all of our retail partners, all of our supply chain partners are in this together. So hopefully we can, you know, all come out of this Um, and be stronger than before.
0: Fingers crossed. Stephen Lamar, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, still to come on First Move. Uber pleads, don't ride with us. We speak to its Senior Vice President for Global Operations on just how the company is adapting to the COVID-19 reality and support they're providing. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And a sign of how things have changed during this pandemic. Uber is now doing the opposite of what it's been doing since the company started. It's encouraging people not to use its ride-hailing services. a recently released advert thanking people for staying at home and avoiding non-essential Uber journeys. Andrew McDonald is the Senior Vice President for Uber's Global Operations and he joins us now. Andrew, great to have you with us. When I saw that advert, it gave me goosebumps because it's sort of the opposite of the entrepreneurial ship that the company represents and what it's provided to to drivers and and, uh, those that are doing deliveries. And now you're saying actually you need to be safe, and safety comes first.
7: Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's right. We we decided to go out with a message uh, globally to remind people to stay home, and that includes reminding our own riders. You know, we feel like uh, social distancing is working. We all have a responsibility to play in this crisis, and if people stay home, we'll get through this together sooner. So, whether you saw our TV ad or even opened a opened the Uber app uh, over the past month, you would have seen a message asking you not to ride unless you absolutely have to.
0: And that doesn't mean that as a company, you don't recognize that for many people, this is their income that's suddenly being switched off overnight. So you've been very proactive, one, about the safety aspects, but also tying the drivers that are now not working to try and get them support based in the country that they they're obviously working in. You've been proactive about that, too.
7: Drivers have been top of mind for us through the Mm. entire crisis. One of the things we've done is we've actually launched uh, an area of the app called the Work Hub, where you can connect with other opportunities to earn money while the rides business is down Uh, So that includes delivering on the platform. Our delivery businesses are up and doing quite well, food delivery, grocery delivery, those types of things. But also even connecting drivers to opportunities with other companies, which is not something we've done before. Uh, the The other thing we've done, as you say, is we've advocated for drivers to be included in government financial assistance programs around the world. And in more than 20 countries they have been included, so those efforts were quite successful. And now we're working to provide information, to provide resources uh, in all 50 states in the US and then in 20 countries around the world for drivers to actually access that financial assistance. So these are just a few of the things we've done. There's obviously much, much more we can do, um, but we're doing our best to prioritize the safety and financial security of drivers through this crisis.
0: I know. I mean, the other thing that you're pioneering, I know, is medication deliveries in in South Africa, too. So just to try and get your drivers doing other things and providing services, if they're not just taking people from from place to place here as well. What are you hearing just specifically in the United States from your drivers about the ability to access those benefits? Because I've certainly heard from a lot of people that have said, State by state, it's just a challenge to be recognized for the first time as a gig economy worker and trying to get support.
7: Yeah, this is the first time that independent workers have been included in programs uh, like unemployment benefit programs, certainly in the U.S., but that's also true in much of the world. Um, And so one of the things we're investing in, as I mentioned, is a COVID-19 information hub, where we're, we're actually going state by state and trying to essentially um, um, aggregate as much information on the process and then give custom guides to drivers about how they navigate the process. And then we're also working with state governments to try to make the programs easier to access. Because, again, as you say, it's the first time a lot of governments have actually included independent workers in this type of relief. And they're sort of figuring out the systems as they go.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's a challenge. And to your point, as you quite rightly say, it's not just in the United States. It's the first time we're really getting a sense of what the gig economy represents and, and providing support in, um, in periods of difficulty. you I know there's something else that, that Uber's very passionate about, and, that, and we've seen it, increasing instances, reports of domestic violence with people being told to shelter in place, to stay at home under lockdown and, and facing potential abusers. Talk to me about the work that Uber's doing around the globe to try and support those that are suffering this at this moment?
7: So last week we announced a program where we're donating 50,000 free rides uh, to victims of domestic violence around the world. This is gonna be in 16 different countries, 35 cities around the world. Uh, Unfortunately, what we're hearing from experts and from our partners in the space is that over the past few weeks, as people have sheltered in place, Incidences of domestic violence uh, have increased pretty dramatically. And that's a very sad reality of people staying home and and home is not safe for everyone. Uh, So what we're doing is partnering with shelters around the world to distribute these free ride codes and, and try to remove transportation as a barrier to accessing safe spaces.
0: So you will literally provide a free taxi ride for somebody who calls and says, I'm a, I'm a victim of abuse, and take them to some of the shelters that you're, you're partnering with on this?
7: That's exactly right. So we're partnering with shelters around the world. We're actually gonna distribute the codes to the shelters themselves, so that they uh, can distribute them to individuals in need who call the shelters who say, I want to come, I need to come, uh, I don't have a way to get there. Uh, so the shelters will distribute the codes, and hopefully again, we can remove transportation as a barrier uh, to people seeking safety.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. So those that are suffering domestic violence, free food, trying to support your workers, it's one heck of a challenge, um, Andrew, but thank you so much um, for the work that you're doing and we'll stay in touch and uh, gauge progress. Andrew McDonald, there, Senior Vice President at Uber. No, thank you, sir. Thanks. Okay. And if you're a victim of domestic violence living in the United States or know someone who does, please contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline, the number is 1-800-799-SAFE. You can also support organisations such as the National Network to End Domestic Violence or nomore.org. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Dr. Anthony Fauci has become a household name, so it seemed only a matter of time until he got the Saturday Night Live treatment. And that's why our Alison Camerata asked him this a few weeks ago.
4: Which actor would you want to play you? Um, Here are some suggestions that I've heard. Ben Stiller, Brad Pitt. Which one?
8: (laughs) Oh, Brad Pitt, of course.
0: (laughs) Well, on Saturday night, Dr. Fauci's wish came true. Take a listen to this.
8: Now, there's been a lot of misinformation out there about the virus. And yes, the President has taken some liberties with our guidelines, so tonight I would like to explain what the president was trying to say. And remember, let's all keep an open mind. Anybody that needs a test gets a test. We, they're there. They have the test. And the tests are beautiful. Okay, a couple of things. I don't know if I would describe the test as beautiful, unless your idea of beauty is having a cotton swab tickle your brain. Also when he said everyone can get a test, what he meant was almost no one. To the real Dr. Fauci, thank you for your calm and your clarity in this unnerving time. And thank you to the medical workers, first responders and their families for being on the front line.
0: We agree. A nice thank you and far better Brad Pitt says it than I do, but um, wasn't he great, Dr. Fauci? (laughs) Anyway, thank you for watching, stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place, stay safe.